The Imposter Club is produced by Talented People, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. Coming up. I think I made stuff that was probably considered quite low rent, but I think it enabled me to, you know, put the hard yards in, learn the craft more, learn it on the job. This is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder, and each episode I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure, not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own health warning this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging swiping his pass to get into the imposter club today is dov friedman ceo and co-founder of curious films the production company that in just five years has already brought us a brilliant mix of weighty high quality biopics like the ones you've likely seen on amy winehouse caroline flack and Paula Yates, popular factual returning series like Squad Goals and premium single docs on cancer, climate change and court cases for both global streamers and UK terrestrials. Born in Leeds, Dov worked his way up through the documentary ranks to director and eventually exec producer and head of docs. So there's a whole freelance life before his founding of Curious, which I'm keen to dig into and find out how he navigated that time and what led him to setting up his own company, which, incidentally, has just been nominated this year as Best Small Indie at Edinburgh TV Festival Awards. Woohoo! Dov, welcome to the Imposter Club. Thank you, Kimberly. That's a very nice introduction. Slightly made me blush. Sometimes it's quite nice to be reminded of the stuff you've achieved in this uh, very um, subjective, challenging industry, right? Yeah, well, we had a COVID sandwich in the middle of that as well. Unusual time to be setting up just yeah. before a pandemic. Yeah, the year before. Um, so, you know the premise of the Imposter Club. How would you describe your relationship with imposter syndrome, Dov? Uh, I think my relationship with imposter syndrome probably varies through the different stages of your career, I think, when you're trying something different. If you've gone from researching, APing, making, directing, series producing, and then trying to set up a company. I think it's at those initial first stages where you're trying to take on what feels like a a new role. Um, but I think we all feel it, right? This is why your this is why your podcast has been such a success. Uh, what I'm learning through all these conversations I'm having yeah. is that everyone defines it in a different way or feels it in a different way um, and perhaps doesn't even agree with the term but has their own challenges with the way that they handle themselves or the way that they feel. Um, because it's such a freelance industry, it's so subjective. Um, it is, it's pretty brutal, isn't it? And, and, and as a creative person, there's no right answer, is there? So you're always going to be going, how can it be better? How can it be? Maybe I'm not good enough. Yeah, and I've identified with quite a lot of that. And I think it keeps you, you never want to go into a new role or a new project feeling complacent and I think the feeling of imposter syndrome keeps you on your toes 
and I think creatively that's if you if you uh, embrace that in the right way that can be really helpful I have never met another Dov and so I did a bit of um host style tinternet research and found out that if this is true in your case it's of Hebrew origin it's rooted in the Yiddish name meaning bear which according to this baby name website that I looked at um means uh, it, it has a fierce meaning with a gentle image. Would you say that that accurately A describes you and B describes your name? So there's one question that I get asked at least twice a day and have done probably for the last 40 years. And it's always goes one way. It's, oh, Dov, that's an unusual name. What's that short for? I think traditionally, like over the years or when I was first breaking into the industry and, you know, also my childhood, I'd probably always go for the, oh, it's short for David or Dave, call me Dave. I mean, you know, some of my oldest friends call me Dave as a bit of a joke as that's sort of my nickname. <laughs> but if I answer, actually, it's my full name, then the next question that always comes is, oh, where's that come from? Which is probably why I've always probably said oh my name's short for David or something because I don't haven't always wanted to get into where my name comes from which is either Israeli or Hebrew why do you think you don't want to go into it I think this probably taps into in some way why I feel like I'm part of your supposed imposter club or have imposter syndrome whatever it is and something that I felt would make my journey my career in television difficult you know, this is this is just just sort of my feeling, but I think saying you're Jewish or you have an Israeli name or a Hebrew name, I think a lot of baggage comes with that. And I think I'm probably not the only Jew in this country to have a complicated relationship with Israel. I think it says a lot that you actually agreed that your name, yeah, yeah, short for David, just to avoid the conversation. Yeah, or, and or Dave. <laughs> or Dave, yeah, 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 Dave, whatever, whatever, just call me Dave. Um that's really sad, actually. Completely. And this, you know, this is this is about to be my 25th year working in television. And I'd say it's probably only in the last sort of four or five years, maybe since I set up Curious, I actually am just a lot more certain about the way that I answer that question now. It's a really cool name and you should be proud of it. Thank you. I was given a, a more standard middle name in case I didn't like my given name. Is that right? Yeah. So even in your parents' minds, they were thinking about that? Yeah, definitely, for sure. You know, I was born in the 70s in Leeds. It's definitely a consideration. Hmm. So you were born in Leeds. Um, did you know you wanted to work in telly from a young age? And how did you end up in, in London working? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd always had, I mean, I'd always had the dream of, people wanted to be a, a footballer or an astronaut or something I'd always wanted to kind of the dream was to make make movies in the film world uh, and I think I got I got a chance to do a, a film history course in Manchester and as part of the I think as part of my second year I had to do a placement and uh, I got a placement at a documentary company for a couple of weeks kind of building office furniture and making tea um and then they'd just been commissioned to make a show about london sewers 
um, and no one wanted to go down the sewer, and they needed someone to go down there, so I offered to go down the sewers with them. So they extended, ended up extending me throughout the whole summer, and I worked there and then uh, kept in touch with them. I did some work with them in Manchester in my my final year. Uh, they were making a series in Blackpool, and then they offered me a job straight out of uni. Uh, so it was good. It was yeah, that was that was my entry in really. Uh, IKEA furniture and cups of tea, and being willing to work down in London sewers has got me got me started. Did you know anyone who was work who worked in telly, or did any of your family work in TV? No, um, I my brother had a friend who worked in telly. Uh, I knew someone that worked in telly, and, and yeah, they basically got me that uh, the two weeks work experience. But yeah, no, I'd never met anyone that worked in telly before. Um, I think most, most everyone else in my family's got a proper job. It's is how it's sort of described. <laughs> Which is yeah, you kind of laugh along, don't you? And then you kind of think, yeah, maybe it would have been more sensible to do something a bit more stable. Yeah, no, exactly. What was your first job? So I. I wrote letters because that's how old we are, right? I wrote letters. Um, again, I, I didn't know anyone in telly um, and I wrote t- to all kinds of places. But my first work placement that I got was on uh, GMTV. Oh, yeah. Oh, is, that what, is that what it was called? Yeah. The, bre- the breakfast show, I- ITV. And then ended up, I think my first paid job uh, was on Big Brother as a runner. Very good. Uh, Big Brother's Little Brother, series two. Yeah. And I think that, that for me, that was just, um, I think I was quite confident, actually. Quite a few people have asked me, so what, what's my deal with imposter syndrome? Yeah. And I've, I feel lucky in that I've, I've had imposter syndrome moments. Yeah. Like I, think, I think you'd be mad in, in probably any industry, but certainly in TV, to never have felt it. Where I've had someone look past me, even while I'm getting my camera out of the bag, um, to set up to film them, look past me and go, when's the cameraman turning up? And, oh, you're not filming, are you? Yeah. Well, yes, I am actually, and I'm I'm fucking good at it. So I've had that, but where I've been quite fierce back, but inside I've gone, oh my God, actually, this is this is yeah. really scary. Yeah. Or when someone's told me that my edit was so boring, they wanted to poke their own eyes out with a pencil. That that was a highlight. Yeah. Um, and then I felt like I, I genuinely wasn't good enough um, when I was new. But I, I feel like I... I don't know what it is, but I've I've managed to kind of navigate that with a sort of a down to earth confidence that I I know I'm okay, and these are just temporary feelings rather than it's being deep rooted. Yeah, so, so I, I feel lucky in that sense. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably the way I experience it as well. It's kind of that it, it it's those moments. It's that kind of next challenge that you're taking something on at a different sort of phase in your career, and trying to set yourself that you can do that. For sure. I think that's where it comes from for me too. But you, you've always worked on really good stuff, right? So when, when I was talent managing after I? I directed and had my kids. Yeah, yeah you have. Okay. You have. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell, well I, well, actually, no, let's pick up on that. What have you worked on that, um, uh, that you have not been proud of? Um, no, I... I, I <laughs> now I, you don't want to tell me. I, look, I'd rephrase that, right? I think I'd, I've done my time on kind of making mistakes and being able to make mistakes. I was really fortunate enough to be, and actually probably didn't really, really appreciate it at the time, but I think I was pretty young when I got given my first directing job. I think I might have been in my early 20s. 
um, and that was a show we did for Bravo about like gangs around the world with Goldie doing the links. And I went to Chicago, LA, and like filmed these like little gorilla docs about gangs in these cities around the world. Uh, shot it and then I cut them all, edited them all. And God, I mean, is that the most exposing place to kind of learn how to do your job? Um, which, you know, taught me everything. Like, God, why didn't I shoot it in this way? Just, you know, taught me so much about, um, you know, just how to construct a piece of television because you never get the training for it, right? But it was in a place that was probably quite safe because it was on a, you know, it was on a channel called Bravo. The, the budgets were super low. Um, so you could experiment, you could safe place to make mistakes, I'd say. So I think this was in the era before, um, the edit producer became a thing, right? And I've always had a thing of like how, how I've just never quite got how the role of an edit producer works because that, the, that's where you learn. You go off and you shoot something, whether you're shooting it yourself or you've shot it with a crew, but you're there on location, you're making those decisions, and then you're taking it into the cutting room. That's where you're just going to learn everything about what to do, what not to do. And I just have always felt in that period when you've got these directors who are so talented and not getting the opportunity to cut their own material, I think that was, I think that was a sort of training mistake that the industry has gone through. So, you know, we're we're always really keen we've always been quite keen at, at curious when we can really influence those kind of decisions that people that produce or direct or like are in charge of you know the, the, the creation of these shows should get to cut them yeah i think i made stuff that was yeah probably considered quite low rent but i think it enabled me to you know put the hard yards in learn learn the craft more learn it on the job uh, in a place that was not ultimately overexposing. And I look back now and I, I think how grateful I was for that, those opportunities. And I don't think they actually come up that much anymore and it's it potentially an industry issue. Um, yeah. Because where are these training grounds? You know, where are the lower rent channels um, where you learn and, you know, people enter the industry wanting to make your Amy Winehouse film, for example, but it's never going to happen straight off the bat is it you've got to go somewhere and make yeah. stuff and yeah. make mistakes and but but I think people get worried about what credits are on their CV um probably too much nowadays unless it's a fault of hiring managers being too snobby about what's on someone's CV actually yeah I mean look that would always be advice I'd give to any sort of up-and-coming producer or director is just you know get the get the experience in there get you know go shoot your own stuff. i mean it's also different now as well because also you can just go make you can go film something you can go cut something on your phone i mean my kids are messing around with that sort of stuff that we could never have done you know 25 years ago in that way but yeah just getting there mate be in a safe place to learn your craft and and, and make mistakes for sure so yeah so when i was so i directed and then moved into talent and that's yeah. when we met um and I always think of things on your CV like the island with Bear Grylls um, and an hour to save your life. Yeah. And you, know, you were making what, you know, in essence were 
they were documentary and content, albeit with a kind of constructed formats uh, as well as you know straight docs. But I wonder whether how how easy was it for you to find those jobs or the jobs that you really wanted to work on? I mean, it wasn't easy because you, you're weighing up like you want to do jobs that you like really want to do. Um, I think this has all sort of led led me to where where I am today. But you kind of I think the longer you go on in telly and you realize how hard it is you want to make programs or be involved in programs you sort of believe in but also you you need to earn a living right um i don't think i was ever very good at uh i will just sit around for a couple of months and just wait for the right project to come along i've always been i like to be busy uh, I like to be moving, I like to be thinking so kind of just like, you know, sitting around and wait, waiting for the next thing to come along I was never very good at uh, good at that, so I think it was always quite difficult to find stuff that I wanted to make, but, you know, keep working In a sec I think it's a precarious career, right, that you can spend years trying to get everything right, delivering the, the very best shows, but I think there's always that fear that if one goes wrong that's it Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote... You can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month. And with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. This is the Imposter Club, and this is my chat with Dov Friedman. I think a lot of people will identify with that issue or that challenge of choosing and going, shall I take this because it's low rent or um, it's not what I want to do or it's, you know, it's, make, it's pigeonholing me more into entertainment and I don't want to do that, but I also need to pay the rent or mortgage or whatever. Yeah. Um, can you remember any times when you were freelancing that you thought, this is too hard, I'm just going to jack it in and get a stable job? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when I got my first 
straight out of university. It was um, a researching position on a BBC docu-soap back in the day. And I moved down to London. I slept, slept on the floor of my brother's flat. I just thought, well, this is all right. This is easy, isn't it? And I got whatever it was, like a six-month contract. And I just thought, well, I'll finish that contract. So I'll just get another job. But it, no, it didn't work like that. So I think when that finished, uh, yeah, I was out of work for, for quite a while. And just didn't know didn't know how to navigate the freelance world. How do you speak to people? How do you look for jobs? How do you make connections? Um, so that that was very tough. You know, London's not a cheap place to be, and I probably came quite close to moving back up north a few times. But then you learn you learn how to sort of play the game a bit more and kind of make connections and speak to people and get on people's radar, but. Yeah, I think I was very naive when I got that first job and just thought it'd be really easy and I'd just go from job to job to job, but it does not work like that, as we all know. Being a freelancer is really, really hard, I think, and, um, you know, especially over the last couple of years and what the industry is going through uh, right now is, is really difficult. And I think the older you get and the more responsibility you have, it's even harder. So, um yeah, you know, Charlie, my partner's also been a freelancer for a long time. So I think a lot of the ways that we think about, we try to operate the company, come from thinking about freelancers when we can because we've both done it for so long. And it's hard. It is really hard. Um, I want to come back to the reasons as well why you set up Curious in a bit. We're sort of getting there. Yeah. So, and, and we'll talk more about that. Okay. Um, but then as a director and as an SP... Uh, which actually I think is the core of our, our listeners here on this podcast. Um, talk to me a bit about how those moments where you still felt, even though you had a lot of experience, that you hadn't got it right or that someone else, whether it was yourself or your commissioner or your boss, was doubting you because there is quite a lot in your story I know about what fueled you to set up your own business. I think... I mean, you've you've referenced the island. That was probably one of the scariest shows I've ever been involved with because that was that was. I mean, at one point I was like, it wasn't so much I hope we're going to come back with sixteen episodes of telly. It's like I hope we're going to come back with all the contributors in one piece. Um, (laughs) You know, they were out on an island. I think it was. I think that season we did two weeks longer than they'd ever done before. You know, there was incidents where some of the trackers went offline and the rescue crews had to go over in a storm to get them. There's going out on a raft when they're all really malnourished and getting caught in a, a, a pretty bad riptide. And, you know, that that show, I felt quite, quite on edge. I mean, we were out there for two months. I don't think I slept very well for two months. And I think I think it's a precarious career, right? That you can spend years uh, trying to get everything right, delivering the, the very best shows, making all the best contacts. But I think there's always that fear that if one goes wrong, that's it. Or if one relationship falls apart and someone decides to talk bad of you, that's it. So everything you might have spent eight, nine, ten years building 
that one project goes wrong for whatever reason and that's it and you know i know i've had moments where uh, we've had a first viewing with a broadcaster on a show the kind of cuts ended and there's sort of horrendous silence for like five seconds it feels like an eternity and oh god yeah someone stood up and going i really regret commissioning this and then you're like that moment is ah that's it your heart drops i'm probably never going to work again and i'm sure that's not the case but i think as a freelancer you're you just feel more exposed to those those ones that don't go well um and again that's probably what makes it quite a precarious position to be in and um i think that the sort of bigger projects you take on the sort of the the stakes are always higher aren't they i can really relate to that and i know every freelancer will it feels like you're only as good as your last reference totally um can we talk about diversity and inclusion sure because dov you are jewish and you know happy to talk about it um do you cite it as um you being from an underrepresented group well i didn't used to but the more i think about it the more diversity is on right so become a kind of conversation in the industry there's definitely in the more you think about it there's definitely a um a feeling that it's perhaps not recognized as uh, being a minority group in, in the same way as others are how do you feel about that well i think it's something that should be talked about i mean you know there's i think someone like david Badil or david rich has you know has got a much clearer kind of intellectual argument around jews don't count than i've got but i i, I definitely recognize it in the industry over recent years when we're having conversations about diversity and Judaism, like literally not, not counting, you know, whether it's kind of going through who are the diverse members of a, a production team and, you know, me as an exec is, is Jewish and comes from a minority uh, background. It's like, well, not, not that. No, not that form of diversity. That that doesn't count. You know, I've literally had those kind of conversations, and we've had other conversations around when we were trying to set the company up, and you know, maybe look, looking for bits of investment. And at the time, we weren't the right fit because we weren't. Uh, they were looking for diverse companies, uh, and that was someone Jewish that told me that. So right. it's just something that's become a bit more. I wouldn't say it's something that's kind of I've thought about throughout my whole career but just in the last five six years and, and certainly since we set up curious it's done you know and diversity has become more of a focus and an important thing i think it's something that i've just started to question a bit more and uh try and have conversations about you know why it's probably not classed as a minority well for, for me the, the whole the whole push towards diversity in television is to do with building richly diverse teams from all walks of life right um and and but the reason the reason for that is because people from different uh, ethnic minorities disabled people yeah um people from the lgbtq plus community all have a a certain life experience that is rattling around their head that is presenting itself in their social lives in their personal lives all the time so when they come to work 
they're going to have a different perspective. And that different perspective in a brainstorm or when on the phone to a contributor yeah. or um, when influencing a decision about the team is going to um, bring something positive and good or at least a different angle. And, and, and that is then going to reflect on the productions, on the, on the program, on, the, on your output. So that's why I think it's important. Well, I mean, you know, I experienced anti-Semitism growing up and my my kids in London uh, went to a Jewish primary school that has security guards outside it. And in the last few years, last 10 years, when there's been incidents like the Charlie Hebdo attacks, my kids have had to do um, terrorism drills, like lockdown drills in the school. What would happen if an armed attacker would storm the school? And that's kind of quite normalised for them as well. So, yeah, you know, it's definitely around. And um, I think in the early days when, when we'd started the company, being a bit more like, oh, well, let's not, we can't push the fact that being Jewish should count as diversity. But I think, you know, the, the, the sort of um, longer we go on, the bit more established we become. We're, 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 we're sort of more open to having those conversations with broadcasters. So talk to me about why you set up Curious. You were freelancing in successful roles over years. It's a huge risk to set up a business, you know, certainly sort of five years ago. Why did you do it? Um, you know, I'd been, I think we were in a, I was in a space where you've been working in telly for a long time. You want to work on the best projects you can work on. You want to work around the best people. And I just felt I wasn't, we, I wasn't in the conversations for the best projects, uh, the right conversations. And I was maybe, you know, certainly in a more senior role where I was trying to, a, a business winning role as well, pitching stuff that I didn't really believe in. And I think commissioners smell that on you a mile away. So I think it was just to take ownership of what we were making and the space that we were making it in. I think I think it was sort of as simple as that. And um, so to work on the projects that you really wanted to work on, effectively. Exactly. Yeah. That's quite extreme, though, isn't it? Setting up your own company to to be able to work on the projects that you feel passionately about. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess I wasn't getting the phone. You know, I wasn't getting called about projects that I really wanted to make, and been doing it for quite a while and keep yourself sharp and keep yourself focused and knowing that you're going to do a good job. You just want to really believe in the projects. So I think that was, that, that was definitely a big part of it. And, you know, also having just creating a good place with the best people to sort of work in. I think working with people with shared kind of taste and creative taste is, is, is really important. Probably something I didn't really appreciate until, you know, the last eight, nine years, that when you don't work with someone with shared taste, it just makes it a bit more difficult. So Charlie and I had worked together for a long, long time on and off. We'd always sort of done our best work together and we just thought, you know, our sort of schedules aligned and we just thought, let's give it a go. We gave ourselves nine months and that's what we did. That was in 2018. After this super quick message, so much of filmmaking is timing and luck and that was so much part of our story of how we got up and running. 
I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. You're part of the Imposter Club, the podcast where oversharing is definitely caring. Back to the episode. I know that I, I said all of the brilliant things that Curious have made in five years, and you've just said, yeah, I wasn't working on the stuff I wanted to, so I just set up a company, which makes it sound really easy. Uh, yeah. Um, and let's let's face I didn't it. Mean it to um, sound like that. No, but I mean that that's if you if you summarise what you've done, those are the facts as well. Yeah. So tell me the reality of setting up your own company. Well, I sort of probably didn't quite realise it at the time, but I was sort of doing the job that I've always kind of done, as in making shows or sort of pitching shows, and then took on another job at the same time of building a business. So are people going to get paid? How are we going to pay them? Legals, toilet paper, plumbing, property... Um, tax, finance, you know, just like everything. So, you know, it's kind of of totally, totally two hats. And and I think the biggest thing I realized quite quickly after we did it is I'd worked at a lot of companies being a freelancer and pretty quickly I had all of a sudden had a lot more respect for all of them just to kind of, you know, get through year by year. It's tough. It is really difficult. It is really difficult. And the year after we set up, we obviously hit a pandemic. So um, that was uh, that was interesting. You know, there was a lot of... And did you have any funding to set it up? No, we bootstrapped the whole thing. We bootstrapped the whole so thing. So you must have gone from earning, you know, earning a decent wage as a freelancer when you're working yeah. to earning nothing for the first, what, year or so? Yeah, no, I walked away from a pretty comfortable executive role at another company um charlie walked away from any number of shows that he could have made i think he just won he just made the his chris packham film so yeah we, we yeah we walked yeah we i think we said to ourselves and said to our partners we'll give it i think we worked out we could probably survive for nine months without earning anything um so that was it and if it didn't work out we'd probably go back to sort of freelancing and we were so incredibly fortunate that i think within the first week of um deciding we were doing it so i I finished my other job um left my job we were introduced to a young lad 18 year old jack sullivan who was setting up a women's football team and we met him and we just started shooting this taster tape and we showed it to the BBC and I think within about four weeks we were in funded development and four weeks after that we had a 10-part commission for BBC Three. 
Um, That's unheard of. I, yeah, well, look, I, I don't, I don't, I don't say it like that. As, like we planned it in, in in that way. It was completely. I mean, look, so much of filmmaking is timing and luck, and it was complete timing and luck. I mean, it was when we when we showed the taster to the beeb. It was like, yeah, we we quite like this. We'll think about it for a bit. But I think it was. I think it was all happening because they were they were about to start football season. They had like four weeks to kind of build it. And I was like, look, if you want to do the story, we need to be filming it. And it needed so it, it was kind of one of those time sensitive commissions. Um <laughs> It's that, quite handy that to, yeah, to force was, the uh, the hand of the commissioner. It was really handy. So that was the luck element and the timing was was everything and we just hit on you know as soon as we met him we just knew we had something but yeah you know that's that totally got us up and running and out of the blocks I mean and at that moment we had nothing we had um we had a laptop and we had a camera and four weeks later it was like god we need to have a show on air in six weeks we we, we didn't have anything um and, and so, no kind I, of infrastructure nothing we didn't have anything did you have a bank account we got a bank account very quickly uh <laughs> and i really i do i do remember i'm probably one of the biggest buzzes we've ever had in the last five years it's that moment where the the, the uh paid development landed in our bank account i think it was something like five thousand pounds i think i think there's a photograph of it somewhere we were both on a pavement somewhere and it was just an incredible incredible moment uh that just felt oh wow like someone's actually believed in us to to go and make this show and deliver it and try and put it on air yeah I'll never forget it's that so moment, symbolic actually. isn't it that's not that's, that's yeah that's not just the money is it it's no um, no it wasn't it's the money the fact that someone has trusted you and they, yeah. they are they have faith in you yeah. and that that is the beginning of your business you know yeah. you are above the zero <laughs> yeah yeah no, and it got us up and running and, you know, so much of, like, you know, even what, like, where where the company's based, where our office is, is, is next to a post house who kind of helps us out. And, you know, the first thing we thought is, what do we need? It was like, well, we need post-production. So that's sort of, yeah, just so much part of our story of, 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 of how we got up and running. Um, but, you know, time and luck, timing and luck, for sure. And I know you put a lot of emphasis on relationships, like you say, post-production and, you know, your brilliant head of production and um, just shaping the team around you. Uh, and I know you've, you've talked already through this um, podcast about building things out of what you have experienced that wasn't so good. Yeah. What are you most proud of having done or achieved at Curious? I don't know. I get little shots of pride, like, all the time. Like, I, even over, like, really little, like, you know, we, we, we had one of our core sort of team members kind of went uh, was got on the BBC Three Young Director Scheme and made her first film last year. Um, that was an in, that was a really sort of proud moment. Um, you know, getting our first Netflix commission was hugely sort of proud moment. Um, decorating the office toilet the other week finally was a really <laughs> proud moment i mean you just have you just have so many there's there's lots of so so many facets i mean look you know this running your own business as well just everything 
every little thing, every little component of the company, kind of every little victory you feel and every little knock you probably feel even harder. Um, so, yeah. oh, for sure. I think, do, do you know what? If it is one moment, it is probably that one moment of getting our first commission of that series. Because I think that was that was the moment where we thought, God, we can probably do this. We and that was probably more about proving it to ourselves more than anything because we didn't we didn't really know we just saw we 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 give it a punt sort of now or never. Because I wonder if you if you would make that now, I won't like you know if if you had hadn't made that series and you you know you'd gone on to make your yeah your single docs and your Amy and Caroline stuff and your, yeah you know I wonder whether you would you would go after that idea now. I think we would, but you know, it doesn't feel very curious in a way. I think what we were talking about of, of like being in a safe place to kind of make mistakes. I think probably that, that was our version of it because it was BBC three because of the, the, the tone of it. And because we were, we, we were in this sort of monthly drop, uh, there's a bit of a meta feel about it in places as well. And I think we, we learned, we learned everything about running a company on that, on that first series, everything. And that there were, if we're talking about imposter moments, huge imposter moments on that series as well. You know, trying to, you know, finance conversations, budgeting conversations, trying to do an access agreement with a Premier League football club. Um, you know, all those, all it all happened on that, in that summer, and you know, it was terrifying and definitely felt like an imposter in that that time. But it was also really exhilarating, and. I remember we went for, I think we, it might have been the Greenlight meeting. We, Charlie and I were like you know, we were running around London. I think we had a camera with us and I was carrying the tripod and we went into um broadcasting house and they wouldn't let us leave the kit downstairs. We had to take it with us. So we, we walked in quite an important meeting. There was a couple of commissioners in there and I think it was like this sort of big sort of you know kill or cook meeting and we were like absolutely mortified that we were going to have to walk into this meeting like projecting ourselves as kind of company owners business owners we know exactly what we're doing and we're walking in with like camera yeah. care and we're like oh my god this is like <laughs> devastatingly embarrassing we look like a couple of total bozos and we thought you know we're never going to get it over the line but you know what? They absolutely loved that we had just come from the shoot and were filming it because they were like, they just got the feeling that we were going to be absolutely all over it and we would do whatever it takes to create the best show. So what went from a kind of what we thought was an absolutely mortifying, embarrassing moment, you know, who knows, might have got that project over the line because we walked in with a camera and a tripod. <laughs> Do you think they also potentially thought, oh, this is going to be really cheap because these two are both running the company well, maybe. and shooting it? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first two episodes of that show were basically the taster tape that we shot because, again, it had that chronological thing and it was all happening and we just had to capture it before we hadn't hired anyone. And, yeah, so the first two episodes uh, are shot by Charlie and I think I did all the sound on it, which is great. I mean, it was so I just love so that, annoying. though. Yeah. Yeah, and like it is really exciting and terrifying running something yourself, and nobody yeah. teaches you it. Like you say, you're you're everything to everyone at that point, and you are winging it. 
big yeah. time. Yeah. But with with a whole you know bank of experience behind you, just yeah. not that specific one. And you're such a you're a doer. You weren't scared to just get on and do it, and you know embrace the fear and do it yeah. anyway. I think there was a feeling as well with, and maybe that's why West they, they, we got the access. They were new, we were new. I think they kind of liked that. But there's an anarchic energy to that first series that I I look back on and it just reminds me of, you know, some really exhilarating times that we had in the in in the early days. They got to Wembley that season. They got to the FA Cup final. That's incredible. Yeah, it was great. And there was, there was a lot of parallels between what they were going through. And I think because uh, they were a brand new team that I put together and, and we, we, you know, we were a brand new company as well. I think I think that's that's just all in the tone of the show. Lovely. That's so cool. OK, um, what would you, Dov, now say to that uh, 21 year old uh, wannabe researcher sleeping on your brother's floor? Yeah. Uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Like, what would you tell the younger you? Don't be afraid to make mistakes and trust your gut. Oh, I like that. Is that too cheesy? I like that because you do you do now. No, because you do now, right? You didn't you didn't know that then, and you do know that that's okay now. Yeah, I just have more confidence in going with my gut. Um, you know. On, on, I mean, in, again, you know this. You, how many decisions do you have to make as a business owner every single day? And sometimes you don't quite know the answer, but you get a good gut feeling. Okay, one last thing though before I let you go, Dov. What's Dov short for? It's short for nothing. It's my full name. Oh yeah, where, where does that come from? Then I've never heard that before. It's an Israeli name, and it means bear. Very good. Thank you so much for talking to me on the Imposter Club. God, that I always sound presentary when I say it. I don't mean it. Uh, it's been lovely to hang out with you this morning. Thank you. No, thank you. I enjoyed the chat. Really good. That's it for this episode of the Imposter Club, brought to you by talented people. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.